talk this evening is on original blessing. When we think of the spiritual life and spiritual practice, we often tend to think of it as being a flight, a path from somewhere and something to somewhere and to something else different and apart from where we are. The spiritual life and spiritual practice is frequently seen as being a kind of a stepping stone, a ladder even, to somewhere loftier, higher, superior even, to what we're experiencing in this moment. And we find ourselves, and it's difficult at times not to find ourselves having rather inflated and rather glorious images of this spiritual destination that we're traveling towards or that we're even fleeing towards based on our stories, based on talking to others, based on the stories of those who've gone before us. We may have images of a life now or a life after this life where there will hopefully be in that destination a greatness of joy and wonder, where there will hopefully be in that destination an end of pain and struggle, where there will be an abundance of bliss, of harmony, of wisdom, of compassion. All of these words we hear used so often in the spiritual life do often describe somewhere that seems to be separate and apart from our actuality in that moment. It is difficult then not to conceive of them as a destination. When we have images of a destination, no matter how vague or unconscious those images are, we also do tend to have images of ourselves, of who it will be who will arrive at this destination, destination, who it will be who enters this kind of heavenly realm we perceive of as being possible. And it's not easy to conceive of entering this kind of blissful retirement unless some changes have taken place. We're clearly not going to arrive at this destination carrying the endless baggage of our tacky minds and our attachments and identifications and grasping. Clearly, some changes are going to take place we can see probably that we will have to be worthy, worthy of arrival. Changes will have taken place. Perhaps we will know we've arrived when we find ourselves overflowing with wisdom and compassion, when we find ourselves filled with love and understanding. We perhaps might have an image of ourselves being pure, Whenever a trace of anger or resentment arises, where there's never a trace of grasping or 
pride or of greed. But essentially, to be worthy of arrival, we will have become a spiritual paragon, a model, perhaps of spiritual excellence. The other side of this flight towards excellence is the flight from something. The flight from the impure, from the inferior, from what we conceive of as being the imperfect. These two almost automatically go together in our minds. The flight to somewhere, the flight to becoming someone, is accompanied by the belief that we must flee from somewhere and flee from being someone on that place that we're fleeing from we describe as now. And that person that we're fleeing from is, of course, none other than ourselves or of how we conceive of ourselves. To arrive at spiritual excellence, transcendence seems to be a very key ingredient that we must learn how to transcend. And it's all too easy for us to name the obstacles that seem to hinder our arrival at this destination. When we look inwardly, when we look at our lives, at our minds, at our hearts, we do frequently find much that doesn't please us. We see, perhaps, greed and anger. There are moments when we despair at the levels of confusion it's possible for us to experience. There are moments when we're saddened by the gaps and the chasms that seem to exist between self and other, between inner and outer. There are times when we feel even horrified by how our minds can work with its capacity for judgment and for holding resentment. It's very easy for us to conclude when we're introduced to this rather bleak landscape that we at times encounter inwardly that this is what we must change. That these are our imperfections. That these are our weaknesses or our impurities that we must flee from. Or that at the very least we must learn how to alter and to modify. And why? Do we believe that? We believe that that alteration or that transcendence is necessary in order to become worthy, in order to be spiritual, even in order to be acceptable, to become the kind of person that we wish to be. In this dualistic way of seeing, we're not only fleeing from someone, from who we believe ourselves to be, but also from somewhere. Just as we look inwardly and at times encounter a rather bleak inner landscape, we also encounter this in the world around us. When we're aware of the world and are touched by the world around us, we're often grieved by the degree of oppression and the degree of injustice that is the diet, the daily diet, of countless number of people, often saddened by the conflict, by the hatred that exists, by the chaos and by the confusion and the division 
that seems to permeate every level of our world. And we easily conclude, when we look at this word, well, that that which is sacred, that which is truly sacred, must lie somewhere else. Somewhere separate and apart from this division, from this anger and from this greed. We may react with aversion or even with fear to the world around us. But underneath it, so often we believe that there is very little in this world that is worthy of reverence. That we must look somewhere else. Some different plane of existence. Some different level of existence to find the peace and the wisdom that we seek for. It sometimes seems so logical and also so understandable to believe that the spiritual life is a flight from something and a flight to something else. And there's a whole wealth of religious teaching and religious history that we have all absorbed throughout our lives which supports this belief. I want to read to you just a little bit of this kind of history even from those that we admire deeply. Milarepa said, The all-worldly pursuits have but the one unavoidable and inevitable end, which is sorrow. Acquisitions end in dispersion, building in destruction, meetings in separation, and birth in death. Sri Ramakrishna shared with us his perception that he who contemplates the lotus feet of God looks on even the most beautiful woman as mere ash from the cremation ground. (laughs) From the Christian tradition, we're told, before a man can find God, all his likings and desires have to be utterly changed. All these things you have loved must become as bitter to thee as their enjoyment was sweet unto thee. And Alice Bailey said, Truth lies beyond the world of feeling altogether, unaffected by it, and can only be sensed in its purity when feeling has been transcended. This fairly punchy remarks. A few samples only of the religious conditioning that we have absorbed. And when we listen to those kinds of statements, often we have a very gut reaction to them, that they must be wrong. They must be wrong, that this is not what the spiritual life is about, this is not what spirituality is about. And yet from tradition after tradition, teacher after teacher, we have this view confirmed, that this is all worthless. That emptiness is equated with worthlessness. That transcendence is the key. And often when we have those gut feelings that this is all wrong, we don't want to hear this, we've heard too much of it, those thoughts are often followed by another thought. Well, what if they're right? What if they're right? And we don't have to look very far in our own lives to know that attachment and grasping and involvement and preoccupation does indeed lead to sorrow. The underlying message in all of these statements is very simple. 
The underlying message is one that encourages us to go beyond, to transcend, to go beyond who we are and to go beyond where we are. In the Buddhist tradition, one of the favorite chants is gate, gate, parasanagate. You know, you've gone, you've gone, you've gone beyond. To say it at the end of every meditation, it's some, a message that we're constantly encouraged to follow. The message that we hear is that separation and disconnection from all this, all this that we cling to, all this that we hold on to, is required of us if we are to see the end of pain and division. That transcendence is required of us if we are to understand what is true and what is real. These messages that we absorb frequently our own perceptions too. Tell us again and again that heaven is indeed separate from us. <clears throat> that the spiritual is indeed separate from the worldly. That the sacred is apart from the mundane. We listen to these messages, we listen to our own perceptions, and of course we see the spiritual path as a stepping stone. A flight from where we are to someone else, somewhere else. A flight from who we are to become someone else. To me, this flight that we engage in and this way of seeing is one of the greatest spiritual mistakes that we can ever engage in. And it's one of the greatest spiritual tragedies that we can ever involve ourselves in. It's a tragedy, this belief is a tragedy when it's unconscious. It's even more of a tragedy when it's consciously pursued. And at the risk of sounding heretical and of contradicting these very august spiritual authorities, my own deepest feeling is that what is being delivered in these messages, in these statements, is the message of original sin. And what is not being delivered in any way in these statements is the message of original blessing. And it seems to me very clear that when we are not acutely connect connected, not directly connected with the message of original blessing, then our spiritual lives, our outer lives, our inner lives, our aspirations are shadowed by fragmentation, by division, and by pain. It seems to me that we are, when we are burdened by the message of original sin, rather than understanding the message of original blessing, that we endlessly perpetuate the sorrow and the division that we're trying to flee from. We don't have to look very far to receive the message of original blessing. It's just that we are rather more prone to believe in the message of original sin. Every tradition, every teacher, in every time, in the past and in the present, every person who has traveled this path before us shares in one fundamental and very singular message. The words that they use differ. They speak of oneness, they speak of enlightenment, they speak of reality, they speak of truth, they speak of God, they speak of liberation. The words differ, but the message is the same. 
And the message that we hear over and over again is that we really are singularly blessed. That there is an infinite and an unconditioned reality, a truth, that lies in and through all difference, that lies in and through all appearances. That there is an undivisible and unshakable oneness that lies in and through all appearance of separation. And that this oneness or this reality is not separate or apart from anything or from anyone. And that to awaken to this reality, to understand this oneness, is to awaken to the suchness of all things. And that to awaken to this reality and to this truth is to awaken to profound liberation and joy. Here too, is that this understanding is not dependent upon anything. If we don't have to be qualified to understand this reality, that we don't have to have spiritual credentials to understand this reality, that we don't have to have gathered together sufficient good karma or merit to understand this reality, that there are no preconditions. And that this understanding is not something that can be gained or possessed. And that it does not lie separate from anything. Not in a separate time. Not in a separate dimension or place. But that it is imminent. It is present. It is everywhere. It is in and through all things. This awakening is never spoken of in negative times. It's never used depressive language to describe it. You know, that it's a terrible thing to be liberated. You know, it's really, you know, such a pain to awaken. It's never spoken of in depressive terms. Instead, what we hear used are words like love, like joy, like wonder, like mystery. Words that are an attempt to describe something that is beyond definition, but not beyond this understanding is spoken of as a revolution in consciousness that will radically revolutionize our lives. And it does seem that great compassion, that great service, that great generosity and forgiveness all have their home in this awakening. And this awakening to oneness, this awakening to interconnectedness. There is an equal amount that is spoken of, original blessing. As Thomas Martin said, we have what we seek for. It's there all the time. It will make itself known to us. The Buddha spoke of suchness in the stones of the river, in the tears of a child, and in the laughter of a joyous heart. As William Blake said, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower is to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Julian of Norwich the fullness of joy is to behold God in everything. What we hear in these messages is the core the spiritual life. 
It is the core and the heart of all spirituality. What we hear is the imminence of truth. That this understanding is not going to be a product of struggling or striving. It's not going to be a product of transcending or of making ourselves perfect or worthy. That this understanding is there for us. That our challenge, perhaps that is not even the right word, is to open our eyes to what has already been revealed to us. This message of original blessing is a message of possibilities, of our own potential. It speaks to us of the greatness of our own possibilities. And it speaks to us and tells us that this greatness, this depth of understanding, is not the territory of only special or saintly people, that it's not only a Siddhartha who can be liberated, it's not only a Gandhi who could know this greatness of forgiveness, that it's not only a Dalai Lama who can know this depth of compassion, that this understanding is there for us, is part of our original blessing in that we are blessed with the capacity to be awake and the capacity to be aware. We are blessed with the possibility of profound awakening and with depth, wisdom and compassion. It is these words that speak to us of possibilities and potential. It is these words that speak to us of original blessing that draw us to the spiritual life. It's these words that lead us to make radical changes in our own lives to explore the depths of our own consciousness. We're not drawn to the spiritual path by words of of censoring and judgment and blame. We're not drawn to the spiritual life in order to be told how hopeless and unworthy and imperfect we are. We're not drawn to a spiritual vision that seems to demand of us disconnection or subduing or the practice of asceticism, no matter matter how much is promised that will come to us as a result of control and asceticism. Fear that we are drawn to the spiritual life by a vision of oneness, by a vision of possibility that embraces all life drawn by a vision of awakening that will reveal to us how we can heal the world around us with love and compassion. A vision of awakening that will show to us how to end chaos and that will reveal to us the way to discover harmony amidst confusion, compassion amidst hatred, wisdom amidst amidst conflict, and oneness amidst division. These are the words of original blessing. That this is not something achieved in a future time or place. That this is about now. And these are the words we respond to deeply. Yet sometimes we can't help but wonder why in the spiritual life, why in our own inner lives we can get so caught up in struggling and striving why we can get so easily ensnared by judgment, by believing in imperfection to be our reality, 
Why we get so ensnared by believing in impurity and weakness? Why we get so caught up in the belief of our own need to transcend who we are? We can't help but wonder why we become so identified with our own boundaries and limitations and go through such pain with our minds and our thoughts and our feelings. Why is it that we're so quick to believe in unworthiness and in the need to become perfect? In fact, you can't help but wonder if we are truly so blessed, so singularly blessed, why on earth we end up so miserable? feeling that there is so much amiss and so much to do and so much to work out and so much to get over. Why do we become so easily exiled from this imminence of truth, from trusting in our own capacity for understanding and for wisdom? And some of the reasons, both outwardly and inwardly, are obvious to us. We can't ignore the weight and the authority of the religious and the social conditioning that we've absorbed in our lives that's made such deep impressions upon us. We can't ignore the various messages we've received through our lives that tell us all about our imperfections in endless detail, even if it's only by presenting models of perfection. We can't ignore the impression that's been made upon us by the expectations we've been exposed to from the moment of our birth. Expectations that invariably tell us you're not quite good enough. That you're not quite right. Even if it's only by presenting us with models of rightness, of acceptability, of what it means to be loving, of what it means to be spiritual. These impressions we receive and absorb affect us. They affect us in a way in which we often go through life carrying within ourselves an impaired sense of vision, a wounded and an incomplete sense of vision. And believing in this impaired, this wounded vision inwardly is what leads us endless struggling and striving and rejection, what leads us to be focusing always somewhere else, always after, is what leads us to these endless attempts to modify and improve upon reality. It's also important to see the effects of all this struggling and striving, how it keeps us busy how it leads to denial and abuse and judgment, how it suffocates spaciousness. And the number of values and standards and expectations we create within ourselves that define what it means to be lovable, to be worthy, to be acceptable. To see how quick we are to name and to label aspects of our own being as opponents, as enemies, as obstacles, and then struggle to overcome them. Why do we do that? Because in our own being, within our own inner world, we have made the separation 
between heaven and earth, between the sacred and the mundane, between the spiritual and the worldly. We do it time after time with our judgments, with our labels, with our descriptions. And every time we believe in it, we fall into that hole. We fall into that trap of needing to transcend and to overcome. We fall into the trap of believing in original sin. And we exile ourselves from original blessing. Consumed in the flight from something and towards something, we end up entangled in knots. And those knots are the basis of the wars that we engage in inwardly and with the world. The history of this struggle, it's easy for us to trace. It's very easy for us to identify this history. Sometimes it's not even difficult to see this struggle as it takes place on a moment-to-moment level. More difficult it is for us to step out of this struggle, to let go deeply and fully and totally of the beliefs that propel that struggle and that banish us from seeing what is here with us already. Often even our attempts to let go end up in more struggle, more judgment, more denial. And sometimes we're afraid to give up the struggle because we fear nothingness. We don't trust that in the absence of separation that there really is a reality, a truth, a oneness that we are part of, that is the essence of our own being. There are no magical solutions. It's not helpful even to have more prescriptions. It's not helpful even necessarily to have more answers and more strategies and more ways and refined things to do in our meditation and ourselves. Because almost every strategy And every prescription on some level upholds that belief in original sin. Almost every strategy and every prescription upholds a belief in separation. It doesn't mean surrendering to separation. It doesn't mean surrendering to passivity. But it's being so watchful of the way in which we perpetuate separation through believing in it, and every struggle with it is a belief in it. It's a visible expression of our belief in it. But we can consider another way of seeing, to see in which beliefs are made tangible and real through our acting upon them, and to our living them in our lives and our way of being, to see the way in which our beliefs are reinforced through dwelling, 
to realize the amount of energy we use to sustain those beliefs. And to question, just to question within ourselves, whether that energy which we use so busily to shore up separation, whether that very same energy cannot be used to reflect upon vision. Just to reflect upon vision. Just to question ourselves. Just to inquire a little more deeply into the whole belief in separation and duality. Can we even begin to open to the possibility that the images and the judgments and the descriptions that plague us, that they're not true? Can we even begin to open to that possibility that they're just not true? That they're fabrications, they're constructions, They have many building stones within them. They're held together by enormously strong cement. But they're not true. They're simply not true. Can we even begin to open to that possibility? Can we even begin to reflect upon our own inner vision that it is possible for us to be free, to understand what that means, to be truly awake, to not believe anymore in the world of separation, the world of appearance, the world of division. That it's possible for us to live with a fullness of compassion, of love, of wisdom. To be able even just to ask ourselves that, or to reflect upon it, not hear empty words, but to begin to have a sense of trust and possibility. And that trust, that sense of vision of possibility, doesn't mean that our images and our descriptions and our judgments will magically and automatically disappear. But perhaps there's the possibility that we will not be so seduced by them, that we will not be so ensnared in our beliefs. As we begin to reflect upon vision. Just to reflect upon the possibility of non-duality. To reflect upon the possibility of non-separation, that all of this that we believed in so long is actually empty. Just to reflect upon that possibility is to begin. It is to begin to see to see clearly, a scene that allows us to see the rise and the passing, the flow of phenomena, the flow of appearances, without feeling any need whatsoever to overcome it or to transcend it in any way. But to see, to welcome, to learn from what is, that everything that passes into our consciousness is a vehicle for understanding. Not to struggle, just not to means that we will begin to encounter a great silence. And what is there when you don't struggle? What is there when you don't dwell? What is there when you're not caught up in that busyness of holding on to anything or rejecting anything? What is there? 
It is not that the appear world of appearances or phenomena or concepts has stopped, but there is an immense silence. There's an immense silence when there's no struggle, an immense stillness. It's not separate from movement. It can't be separate from movement. Because the very essence of movement is also that stillness. And yet, it's not ensnared by movement. Begin to open to a great stillness that embraces presence. But it doesn't need presence and it doesn't need absence. There's just stillness. It's what awareness is, it's what seeing is. That quality of stillness that just is. That relies upon nothing, that needs nothing, that requires nothing that again has no conditions. What we do here is not a stepping stone to enlightenment, just like transcendence is not a stepping stone to happiness. Meditation is not a stepping stone to somewhere else, to some other destination. It just brings us closer to what is truly here, to what is authentic, to what is genuine, to what is lasting to what lies in and through all disappearances and separations. The meditation is simply to be awake. It's not from here to there, but it's from here to here, to see that which is imminent in this moment and in every moment. May all beings live with clarity, May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with awareness. Have a couple of minutes quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.